You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey everyone and welcome back to Page to Stage, a conversation with theater makers. We're your hosts. That's Brian. That's Mary. To put it simply, we're both theater nerds. So let's pull back the curtain and get a glimpse at the artist's process while creating their art. I'm Douglas Lyons. I am a actor, playwright, composer, and black human being. Amazing. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> thanks I mean, for joining us it's true. thank you for having me i love podcasts the yay yeah. awesome well so much fun we're very excited to talk about this process of everything that you do because you do a lot whoa boy <laughs> yes yeah. but we were actually since i would say august when we, saw, we went up to atf to see Bo, we were like we need Adirondack to have theater festival thank you thank Shout you them for out. those listeners that full don't. title they really are it is i mean so chad rabinowitz is the artistic director there and in the past five years he has trained his audiences only to see new musicals and new plays so they come Which is knowing not an easy thing at all he had to turn the system around but they only do new work and so audiences are literally seeing things for the first time and they're so open to it and and they feel a part of it there's a pride from the community because they're like Oh, like if this becomes a thing, we were, you know, I saw it first. We're sending it off. Yeah, yeah. it's not, you know, that non. It's a very like exclusive thing where they get to say yeah. like, oh, I was there when. Yeah. And I got to talk to X, Y, or Z. Yeah. So that was really, I I emailed him probably ten times before we got the okay. Like, have you read it? Cool. Happy things. Have you read it? Wait, so, so you Merry guys Christmas submitted it to him yeah, or so, to the theater? And so, wait, hold on. This is this is Bo. The this is musical Bo, that you- uh, one of the new musicals I'm working on. We got a production at the Adirondack Theater Festival. And if I can cut you off for one second. Yes. Whoever has been listening for since almost the beginning, when we had Ian on, we talked about our favorite or the last great piece of theater that we saw. And he turned the question on us, which has never happened. Mm-hmm. And I had said Bo. Oh, well, there you go. And I hadn't even seen it yet. It was just... Uh, the, from what you've from seen the at Bucks the County. development. Yeah. Oh, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, So it's now full circle. <laughs> full full talent. Um, So I did Ragtime at the Fifth Avenue, and Lewis Hobson, who was the original Doctor Next to Normal on Broadway, played Father. And uh, I was telling him, I mean, I'm a writer, and I do a blah, 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 blah. And I saw that he had produced, he's also a producer, had done some things at ATF, and he knew Chad. And I said, do you mind maybe putting out, you know, a good word and he listened to some of the music demos that we had and so i got chad's email which was the first mistake and uh i emailed him like literally every six like weeks cold. Hey. well i emailed him cold but he knew lewis so that was the connection and then i check in he's like haven't read it yet haven't read it haven't read it and then at least was, you were getting responses though oh yeah for status well we can we'll talk about that too about people not responding but he's very sweet and he really cares he's like i literally got over two thousand submissions um, I'm trying, you know, and then he did read it. And the next step was, I really like it. I think it's one of the best things I've read in a long time. I don't know if I have a slot. That was the next thing I was like, snap. And then it became, I think I might have a slot. Let's have a phone meeting. And on that phone meeting, it was like December 5th, a year ago. He's like, yeah, let's do this. And I was like, okay. and that was the green light for. And did you have RK, your producer at that point? There's been a lot of switcheroos and dancing sure, sure. on the show, As, but you know, at, it happens. But um, RK was at our first reading. So I wrote this in residence at the director's company, um, which coincidentally, a decade ago, I was an actor. My first reading out of the Hart School, 
heart school check it out um was at the director's company and when i was writing uh leah michaelis who is like the associate artistic producer there um was like hey i see you're writing let's talk and i pitched her bow and i got a residency as i was leaving beautiful the first time um and so i've been in residence there and that's where bow was written and uh rk saw our very first reading that we had which was like only two-thirds of the score like running had not been written yet coming home had not been written yet and disappear those were not written in that first reading but uh he liked it and kept asking about it and then we had a producer switch and we're like hey you want to be our producer <laughs> he's like uh yeah let's go for it and so our second reading he led and then the rest is history i have so many questions about your process with Bo and and a lot of your writing stuff but if we could just go back to when you first started uh in the theater world were you a theater kid in high school I got the bug, I would say, at the end of high school on the national tours of Rent and Cats came through New Haven, Connecticut, where I'm from. Um, And I just remember looking at the stage and I didn't know what musical theater was because I grew up singing in the church. Um, I had never gotten technical voice lessons, acting training. I had done some dancing school stuff. So I like knew jazz and I was teaching tap like at 15, like I'd picked up dance, but never really had proper ballet and all that stuff until college. Um, but when the tours came through New Haven, I was like, what is this called? Like, I think, you know, I think I can sing and I want to act and the lights and all that stuff. And it was like musical theater. And so, um, I wasn't a theater kid in high school. Like I didn't go through a theater program, but in my senior year, I did West Side Story. Um, I played Tony because all the Jets were black and the Sharks were Latino. Ooh. The story still works because yeah. tension is tension. Um, but I riffed so inappropriately the entire time. I still remember the riffs, but I will not do that for you right now. Oh, come on. Uh, <laughs> Bonus so, content. Uh, but we'll do that later. Uh, so, yeah, I fell in theater, in love with theater then. And... Um, and coincidentally, I ended up being on that same rent tour like two years later, uh, three years later. Wow. So when did when did the shift occur where you were like, I'm going to make this my career? Like, this is going to be a thing. I think rent because I was so I entered the heart school as a freshman 2004 fall and I booked rent summer of 2006 between my sophomore and junior year, the non-union tour. Um which afforded me so many friendships and relationships and things. Uh, and that was the moment. It was actually a really great hiatus from college because I got to learn the financial business, dealing with personality, traveling, you know, the country and the world. And and did I really want to do this thing? Because it's, it's hard. I mean, what we do eight shows a week, six days a week is hard. And, and we, then you add traveling on top of that. Oh, yeah. And your day off is your travel day. It's so many things. And so that was my entry into it. But I, I caught the bug end of high school. I just, you know, falling in love with Broadway cast albums and creating your own story behind it. And and I love to sing. You know, the shower was my best friend. So to, like, make that a career, I just remember my father being like, we put all the acceptance letters out on the table. Because I didn't get into any... I also waited so late to apply to theater school that I had missed all the early admission and all that stuff. So I did, like, Ithaca and NYU by tape. I had to do, like, two songs and a monologue, like a Shakespearean thing. I had never taken Shakespeare. I didn't know what I was doing. And then uh, North Carolina School of the Arts in person. And Heart. Those are the four programs. And I only got into Heart. And I got a little scholarship. And I just remember my father being like, Doug, so out of all these options, what do you want to do? And I was like, that. He's like, okay, I'm going to ask you one more time. What do you want to do? And I said that. He said, okay, well, here we go. And 
they gave the blessing and the support and the rest is history. Yeah. When did writing come into your life? Heartbreak. Uh, so I was blessed enough to join the Book of Mormon um, in 2012, like right as the Tony, like my first day of rehearsal was the Tony Awards nominations. Sick. Um, but did you get to perform on the Tonys with them? I didn't know. They actually only did like a four person number. Oh, um, this is oh, actually right. 2011 was when I joined Mormon. And then 2012, I went on the national tour. But like early 2012, breakup occurred, heart all broken open. Parents had given me a guitar for my birthday, which is in January. And um, I was like fiddling. Like there's a video of the very first song I started working on before I even met Ethan. Um, and I started writing just as a means of therapy. Um and then I would leave the Broadway company to go to the first national. And that's where I met Ethan and things got a little bit more serious because I was like, oh, I don't have to play anything, but I can sing over it and write lyrics. Oh, I'm down. Like, let's do this. Um, and that started 2012, officially 2013 is when things got serious. I'm really interested in the idea of double duty now as an actor, actor and then actor writer for you. Mm -hmm. And so you talk about picking up the guitar and everything while you were in Book of Mormon. When did you start developing and writing shows at the same time as also performing in shows and making that such a double duty life? Mm -hmm. I, th I would say so. Uh, what's crazy is the first day of rehearsal for Beautiful was August 12th, 2013. Ethan and I recorded our live album August 19th. The week after it was like our official stamp and beginning of musical theater. Um, we didn't have a musical written. Uh, I emailed every I went to every like famous musical theater writer that I knew and looked up their representation and invited all those people to our release. Like it was a live album. It's called Hashtag Love Live. Look it up. Buy it. Don't stream it. Buy it. Um, we that that night we started it all and i invited you know caa william morris all these people and people came out and they were like oh this is so cool do you have a musical and i was like absolutely not we have nothing but we have this music they're like talk to us when you write a musical um and but so, they came but they did come and we That's got amazing. some yeah we got some bites and so that story is to encourage people to like don't be afraid to blind email like what's the worst that's going to happen people say no or they don't respond but like you never know what comes out of that Eight months later, we had an agent at William Morris because on our second concert, which was the beginnings of Five Points, um, uh, an agent like a coordinator came and like I was standing behind him, Michael Finkel, who's now our agent, and he knew the words to our album. And I was like, ah, that's what we want to work with. Um, and we had presented some material from Five Points that night. And that that's when we really started working on musicals. And this is all during Beautiful, you know, and, and that was we were that was the Tony season we were in and everything. So um, because of the break I had in Beautiful on stage, like off stage, rather, I had time to write. And that's sort of how I started to navigate that life. Still not really knowing anything, but knowing that I wanted to tell stories. Um, and then when I realized the structure of how Broadway works and who's making the money, who's not in the building, the producers, director, choreographer, you know, songwriter, lyricists, I was like, eh, if I have any musical talent, I'm going to apply it because um, business wise, there's money to be made when you're not in the building. Um, and a lot of people who have gone to the other side were former actors who used their knowledge for good and then made a career out of it. So that's sort of how I got uh, into writing. And the, and the double duty would be going on stage, doing 1650, having a 15 minute break before um, my, you know, up on the roof moment and writing, you know, something in the hallway. And there's like pictures of me 
and all parts of the beautiful building just writing and working on things. <laughs> yeah. So is there someone or was there someone at the time who was your mentor for a lack of a, I mean, I guess mentor really is the word I'm thinking of, but someone who would have been like, hey, Douglas, like just it's okay to blind email or was it all, would you say all of those situations that you just talked about of where you were just sending blind emails or you were just reaching out to people, just all kind of nature? I think I have a fearlessness about me that my parents instilled in me when I was very young that Liz Larson, that beautiful, she's like, you know, a lot of people don't have that. You realize that. And I was like, no, I guess I didn't. Like, I, I, I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. Like, if you want something to happen in your career, your life, you have to apply yourself. And the only way to do that is to email people or call people and say, hey, I have something to offer in the world. Here it is. And you can't apologize for that or wait for permission because you will never get it. It just will not happen. So true. Um, and so I think just instinctually, I was like, here, here we go. Like, what am I going to lose? It's an email. Um, and so, no, I, I, no, no one told me because I probably should not have been emailing some people that I emailed. <laughs> I mean, and, uh, and I made, who's to say you wouldn't be where you are today without that one email, exactly, you know? Exactly. Who, maybe it wasn't right for them, but they were forwarding it off to somebody else. Yeah, yeah, And you just never know, you know, like connections and, 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 and it's like, oh, this is not right for me, but it might be right for so-and-so. And Or even if that show wasn't right for them, but like the next one that you write is something, you know, and they remember the name. Yeah. So I just think that's really smart because I know that when I was like coming up in like in college and all that stuff, I wanted I wanted something in this career. I wanted to be a part of this industry, but I didn't know how to do that. And I also didn't have the guts to just – I emailed maybe like one or two people. And when I didn't get a response, I was like, eh, all right. It's all guts. Like <laughs> yeah. that's what it takes. Yeah. Um. Like two years ago, our now agent got a call from a um, a producer who's like, I want to talk to you about Douglas Lyons. And so it's like, whoa, what, what is this? And this woman at the time um, was developing a DreamWorks film that they were pitching. And she had found me because of social media, my like social media presence. Um, she's like, that's how I found you. And that, I was another confirmation of like, oh, well... It might be annoying on Facebook, but if that's how people are finding me as a writer, I'm going to do it. You know, it's it's a different time than it was 10 years ago as a composer or writer. Anybody can go on YouTube and become famous if they're discovered or create a following in a way that you could not do 20, 30 years ago. You had to be in the rooms. You had to know the people. Now you don't have to know anyone. You can be discovered. And so why not put yourself out there? You know, you can't wait for someone to call your celebrity or give you the blessing. Child, you'll be waiting the rest of your life. Literally. And so when you were starting out, I think so. I think social media really in the industry arose to the surface a little more, probably at the time you were in the Book of Mormon. Would you, or maybe a little before that? It, start, it actually started around the time Pascal and Paul got on the scene is really when social media hit. They were one of the first, I would say, composers to benefit from that because YouTube was arriving. And so a song that was written could be shared to all these college kids around, you know, the world. Um, and that's, that helped um, I think the beginnings there. Do you think that in the beginning of your career as an actor, even that you felt that social media, do you feel the same pressure that you did then for social media now? Unfortunately, when it comes to actors, I feel like it's over, it can come off a certain way, it can, like visibility. It can, it can like appear like, oh, it's about me. So then what's the difference for you as a composer now that you feel? As a composer, I know that I am serving other people. Like I wrote the thing, but ultimately it is to show like Matt Roden hopefully will be a star because of Bell. 
Like it is about him. It is not about us. We're the catalyst. You know, we wrote the thing, but the 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 joy I have of writing is like, oh, this has not I can hide. I can write the thing and fix the thing and then walk away from the theater. And I don't never gotta be there again. You know what I mean? Like, and hopefully, you know, what Rent did for Idina and Tay Diggs and uh, you know, all those people, it 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 propelled them to a new thing. So as a writer, when I post, I know that I'm doing it because I have a thing that ultimately will bring in people and showcase them. Do you think you'd ever write something for yourself or have you ever written something for yourself? People ask me, I I would do something I've written, but I'm not writing for me Mm -hmm. because that's too much. And then you also don't have a point of view. Like when you're writing. You can step aside. Yeah. 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 So I, I would jump into something that I've written as an exercise. But I, I'm really writing to serve the people. That's really what I feel. Like Chicken and Biscuits, which is being produced at the Queen's Theater in the new year. There are seven African-American leading roles, five of which are female. And three of them, uh, well, there are three different generations in the story. And that to me is like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so finding those other voices, how do you write for those other voices that aren't your your own? You know, you just said three generations yeah, where, yeah, of, of women. Where does you know? that inspiration or where does that like material come from? Well, this particular because you're not because you're not deriving it from um, intellectual property. You know, yeah. there wasn't like a book or, or a movie or anything that you're creating these stories. Yeah, based I really on. like original stuff. Um, without saying too much, it was inspired from like a real life event, the play itself, in which I went home for a funeral and got some tea that I did not know as a child, <laughs> and I was like, oh, that sounds dramatic. How do we put that into a play? I mean. I think listening to people talk is my favorite thing. Um, Growing up in North Carolina and hearing my aunts on a Sunday morning argue about the Bible and like just remembering that was enough of a backdrop of the dynamic of relationship. So you don't have to have lived that, but just hearing how people talk to each other is so much more interesting, I think, than creating the, the idea of a character. It's it's the way we say things or why we say things, not always who we are. You know what I mean? If that yeah. makes sense? Yeah. So it's not like, I want to write a really fierce black woman. It's like, no, my, my um, how I write is like, I ask everyone in the play the same question, but who they are is how they would answer it. That's how I know. So like, how are you today? One might say, I'm fine. One might say, one might talk for five minutes because of her personality. One might not answer you at all. So how do you figure that? Like, that's the fun. Um, and yeah. And, and, and we've had like four different workshops that was also written at the director's company. And um, I, it feels like a gift to the black community in the American theater for me, which I don't see a lot of the stories I want as an African-American told in the American theater. So I'm really excited to to share that. Yeah, I mean, we were just talking before we started recording that. Can I say like where it was? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So at the producer's perspective, um, super, super conference. conference. <laughs> bam, bam. <laughs> bam, bam. Uh, you participated in a live panel discussion on diversity. Mm-hmm. And within the arts. Within Specifically. the arts. Uh, diversity within the arts. Yes. Right. So, and I got to sit down a little bit. And I was looking around the room and I saw so many people that didn't look like the people that were on stage. And Mm so, you know, these are, from what I gather, most of them are probably producers. How do you feel on stage knowing that you're on a on a panel talking to people who are, you know, higher up on the food chain if you want to talk about giving jobs and stuff like that? 
uh, how do you talk about diversity to people that hopefully can give you jobs or are, are the ones making decisions of what's being seen in the industry? You, you just be honest. You just be honest. Like life is too short for anything else. So if I'm going to be in this space, like my new thing, I just did this workshop of um, American Prophet, which is a musical about Frederick Douglass and Marcus Humman, who's an incredible composer. He wrote the song, God Bless the Broken Road, the Rascal Flats tune. Um, and one of the things I took away that Frederick Doug Douglass said a lot was agitate, like agitate the system, agitate the norm. And for me, that's my motto, especially for next year. I don't have time. I'm going to be kind and respectful, but I'm also, if I want to take up space, I have to agitate the system. I'm not going to get where I want to be if I have to apologize or wait. So um, I think just being authentically yourself and saying, look, this is really what I want to do. This is why I'm doing it. You may not know me a day in your life, but you know, here it is. Because I think some people enter rooms trying to be like, well, if I do this, maybe they'll like me. And it's like, that's not actually why we work as artists. We work to be authentic. Um, or you will be changing for every room you go in. And I don't got time for that. I don't have the brains, the energy. I can't. Like, hi, I'm Douglas. I'm, this is this is how I think. This is what I have to say. Oh, you don't like it? Cool. God bless you. Next. Hi, I'm Douglas. This is, you know what I mean? And eventually you will find the person yeah. who's like, I got you. I hear you. I see you. And I've been blessed in the past year to find some people who are like, I get what you're trying to do. I'm behind you. You know? Because also you're, you're probably going to spend years with, with these people. Oh so why try to put on a facade now when it's just going to dwindle and then maybe not work down the line and you just wasted all this time for and yourself you, and for them? Yeah. And yourself, it's like in 10 years from now, what are you building towards? And is who you presented yourself as initially who you want to be. And we're all allowed to change, but I'm saying don't feel like you have to fit in these boxes, especially actors. It's like, well, if I change my hair color and if I'm, you know, if if I'm thin, it's just like, no, no, no. Who are you? What makes you love yourself? And then you will get your best representation out of that. I'm 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 a stickler on that. Like, let's lead with that. Yeah. And the same, yeah, I would assume you would give the same advice to writers or like producers or directors coming up in the field. Yeah. No know your voice and find it like find it own it sell it don't try to fit into what's popular for the moment because things change like where musical theater is now is not where it was a decade ago so if you go being like i want to write the next hades town it's like well actually in a couple of years hades town will, will be you know the tony award-winning musical three years ago or whatever so you want to write what you really want because people can't change that but the times will change I don't know if this was brought up the other day at the <clears throat> on the diversity panel, but I'm interested to know if you find a difference in how you're perceived as an actor versus composer as a person of color. I hear you. I hear you. Um, some people don't know that I'm an actor, which which is like twist. Okay, I didn't. Know. That's cool. so interesting. Originally, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, like I've been an actor for 13 years now. You know, like, but some people literally don't know that, and which is sort of cool that there is a reputation as a writer. Um, as an actor, I would say there's, if we're speaking specifically Broadway, there's, you know, uh, a file and we all know each other. It's a smaller pool, whatever. As a writer, what frustrates me is that there is no, and I spoke about this on the panel, there's not a lot of representation when it comes to musical theater specifically. Right now there is Michael R. Jackson. We all know, you know, Strange Loop. Um, 
George C. Wolfe, um, what Charles Randolph Wright is doing, Stu. Uh, there were a few writers on The Color Purple. Um, but when it comes to Broadway, it's like, blink, blink, question mark, yeah. hello. Uh, and uh, it's frustrating. It's frustrating to me. And part of that is the system of oppression. And when you know the American musical theater was being established, people of color were not even allowed to have voices. Women were not allowed to have voices. And the way that you know we've made progress, but uh, not enough um, in musical theater. And so I think in musical theater, there's a uh, a whole generation of people that are like, this is awesome. Like I've never heard musical theater this way. I feel represented. We've gotten like messages and stuff with Bo, the album. And that's really cool. Like that, that is a reason that I'm veering towards writing more than acting because I feel like I can be more of an activist as a writer supplying work for people than an actor who's just looking for work for myself. That's the that's sort of why I'm on this seesaw of like, ah, what do I really want to do with my life? Because I'm not about the bow. You know, the bow is great, but if I can affect children's lives and write for people of color and underrepresented folks and get a coin, <laughs> bye. <laughs> like. That's so, it. so something that Melvin had said at the panel, Melvin Tunstall the Tunstall third, Tunstall the third, who is the book writer of Polka Dots the Cool Kids yes, musical. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. He's the sweetest. I met him for the first time this weekend. But he said something on the panel that I want to know how you felt about it. He said that you're basically he views you as kind of like the leader to making this change to open the door for more people of color in the in the writing realm. And how do you feel about that? You know, it's weird. A few people have said that to me. And I was talking to my mom yesterday morning and I was like, I'm going to embrace that and not with um, an ego, but like more of like, OK, this is this is my task um, is to agitate the system and say, hey, so there's like a lot of people of color who are really capable of writing musical theater. And if you really want to be diverse and forward, you probably should change the people on the other side of the table as well. Like, let's Hamilton yeah. the other side of the table. Right. <laughs> yep. Like let's let's do that. Um so if I'm have to be that force that's like, hey, hello, let's do it. I'm down to do that. Um, but I don't I won't have an ego about you know, I don't want to lead like I am the next, I am the prophet. I am not. Um, but I'm here to do the work and there's a lot of people that can. So like let us do it. And now's the time. Because yeah. it's so easy to to just put it all on casting and making the face of the show portray, you know, inclusivity. Yeah. No. It has to be in the ink. Mm. It needs to be in the ink. And that's what people don't understand. Like, you know, that gentleman who was like, oh, I just did a production of Gypsy, or or, um, was it Gypsy? Was it Gypsy? You said uh, Guys and Dolls? Guys and Dolls, there we go. He's like, I just did Guys and Dolls and our Adelaide was a person of color. I said, that's great. But who wrote that show? And when was it written? And it's a part of the musical theater canon because you could have guys and dolls. There were, I'm sure there were people of color that could have written a guys and dolls then that would have become a part of the canon, but it couldn't. So make space for us to become a part of the canon. That's all I'm asking. Um, And I'm not saying we have to replace people, but don't think because you had, you know, uh, an Asian actress or a Latin actress in the leading role of your old guys and dolls revival that you're progressive you're thoughtful now i'm clearly not a person of color but um and forgive me if this is ignorant but watching Bo, i mean i don't see that a person of color wrote this musical Mm -hmm. you know 
I mean, from a from a standpoint of of visibility, there's there's nothing. Why wouldn't you just want to include everybody in the process? Exactly. Exactly. And like, so how do you feel that you're putting in that that sort of flavor? Yeah, I understand what you're saying. I think there's a misconception that people of color can only write things about people of color. Right. That, that that, are, I mean, that's what I was trying to say. Yeah, without that, Yeah. yeah and that's our, what I was saying. And our brains can only reach the narrative that we've lived. And you can only relate to what's on stage that you've lived through. Yeah. yeah. It's like, but... And people that look like you. Yeah, but like Carolina Change, which has... You know, centered around a, a black woman, Janine Tesori, Dream Girls, All Black, Henry Krieger, Once on This Island, Aaron's and Flaherty, white people writing black musicals that are in the canon forever. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that there are black people who are capable of writing black musicals as well. And so, make and the, white musicals. And white musicals. And doesn't matter what musical. And yeah, and they're able to write. Let's just. In the exactly. And not just black people, but like people of all different backgrounds are able to write. And so what's frustrating is when people see you or meet you, they don't expect that of you. Mm. They're like, oh, Chicken and Biscuits, that's a black family comedy. It is. But I also have this these other three or four projects that have nothing. To, I mean, it was said to me once, um, can you write anything else that has nothing to do with, you know, you're you asked. You I were was asked. asked that. Yeah, because polka in a, dots in a, like a professional meeting. Yeah, yeah. because uh, polka dots had dropped, and we were working on five points. Polka dots being about the Little Rock Nine and Ruby Bridges and racial segregation, um, and a new telling for children, and then five points, which deals with African American and Irish tension in the 1840s to 60s. Um, and so, his assumption was that's all I could do. So, mm. Bo was actually. An exercise for me to be like, ha, 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 okay, now y'all come see this show and love it and cry. And then let's talk about it after because you won't know who the writer was. You won't look at me and think I was the writer, but that's kind of the point as well. I mean, Musical Theater Factory is incredible um, for championing um, people of color. You know, uh, Bo and Five Points have both gone through there. So there there are places, but it's like pockets um, and it doesn't feel like it is an active, open conversation. But we're going to agitate, so. Can't wait. Here we go. There we go. <laughs> so I was looking at the three works. There's not more, right? It's Bo, Five Points, Polka Dots. And I know that there is one because I did speak to Leah a few weeks ago. I know there's something. <laughs> <laughs> there's like, I mean, there's like five total, five or six total. Finished. Five finished? finished? Uh, yeah. Or like as yeah, finished yeah, yeah, as yeah. finished can be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. We're always so, in process. Of course. Mm. Uh, so are all of those, did all of those come as like an idea from you or were you pitched something that you then had to write someone else's idea? Ethan Pachar, who I met in the Book of Mormon tour, who is my main writing partner, pitched five points to me the week we were going to record our album. So he was on the Mormon tour still when I left and he flew in to record the album. And he was like, have you ever heard of the five points? And I said, no, I don't, I don't know what that, he's like gangs of New York, the film. I'm like, nah, I, don't, I don't know what that means either. Um, but he pitched that idea, okay. uh, which then turned into what it is now. And Harrison, David rivers joined us spring of 2014 as book writer. And, um, it's just been a journey. We had a world premiere last year at theater latte da, um, which was, went very well. And, uh, shortly thereafter officially started working with Annie Blankenbuehler. That name drop. So, oh, so exciting. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's it's a good one. It's it's real. It's real. And it's like a writer's dream to be in a room with someone with such um, 
brilliance and passion, mm-hmm. passion, really, really cares about what we're doing in every nook and cranny. Um, and he's director and choreographer? And choreographer, yep. So he is he working on the development side of, with you guys? We're like, yeah. this week actually we're in a room all week working on everything and making sure it snaps and makes sense and transitions and yeah, it's really cool. So, I mean, I don't know how much you can just, you know, enclose with us, but how has that process been? It's fantastic. Yeah. It's growth. It's yeah. growth. I mean, the, the cool thing about the different projects, you know, Bo was an original idea. I went to a concert uh, at Rockwood Music Hall with a friend of mine and um, the person on stage, my friend Harley J, was talking, you know, during his set about his grandfather and growing up in Salt Lake City. And I was like, huh, I really like the way you told that story. I was moved by the story and we were in a concert setting. And that was the like beginning idea for Bo, which then turned into a residency, which then turned into an actor musician piece and then turned into a full-fledged musical. So so can you talk about the developmental process? Uh, Process-wise, I write 10 pages at a time. So very much like this, when Bo first began, I had five or six pages and I called in five or six actors that read it. And then we talked about it. So and I learned. book and music. So when it started, when Bo first started, I actually had a different book writer and we had started pitching ideas and then it was apparent that like we were on two different pages and I was like you know what out of respect I think we should just part ways and I had never written book before but I was like I think I know what I want to say and so I took a stab at it I sent it to my agent and uh Ethan and they were like okay okay like what's happened okay (laughs) I was like oh god but then I I had uh it went from five pages to 16 pages and then from 16 to 21 pages um and at the time Adam Quinn who is the associate director on Dear Evan Hansen um helped me with development um and directed the first reading and you know we would sit around a table and invite actors um and we had some songs like Pop Pop Bo came to me when I was sleeping one night. And so I started pitching stuff to Ethan because we had always thought musicals are very hard. What if we just do an album and try, you know, to use it as a musical was like the way I pitched it. Um, and then when we had our first reading, Ethan came and saw it. And actually, he had seen a table read before then, but was like, this is really good. I'm proud of you. Let's keep going. And so that's sort of how that happens. But I usually do 10 pages at a time because... If you write a full draft and then in your first reading realize on page six that everyone is turned off by the lead character, you now have an entire show with that lead character making mistakes that is just going to make the audience go, I hate you so much. So you you learn and you listen to the characters and you, you know, Matt, it's between Matt Ronan and Harley in our first bow table reads. And Matt really showed us something that I wasn't necessarily hearing in the script. And so you sometimes build it with the performers in the room and it's original. And when the time comes, you know, he did the table reads and he's the first to originate the role. That's so amazing um, though, that they were all a part of the process in in building it. And because I've never heard of something being built in such little increments. Oh yeah. That's really, that just sounds really unique to and me. And so Matt was from the beginning. He was- <clears throat> Yeah, he he joined probably like second or third table read. He was in. And with Jeb Brown, who I did Beautiful with, I waited because, you know, it's a middle-aged role, if you will, right? I didn't want um, to keep wasting someone's time. And with him, I regard him so much that I was like, I'm going to wait until I think it's at a certain point. And uh, when I finally said it to him, he said, Doug. Um, so I, uh, I, he said, I read the script first. And he, it wasn't bad. He's like, but I waited three 
uh, three days to listen to the music. And he went, oh. Just demos that you had put yeah, together? Yeah, our demos. He's like, this isn't bad. <laughs> and so we got him in the room. And so then that was the beginning. Yeah. Well, you know, the the what I've learned, too, with really seasoned professionals is that people are very selective about what they want to do and, you know, take their time. So it was actually a real honor to have him in the room. Right. Oh, yeah. And like, you know, we had worked together and that can be awkward if if you're like, I love you, but I don't know. Isn't that great? You know, so to have him in the room was was a gift. And then, you know, a year and a half later, we're on stage and then we're in the recording booth with Sony. And now it's a... Yeah. Can you talk to us about the experience recording of something that... I'm guessing you did the uh, beautiful cast recording as an actor. Yes. So can you talk about, you know, the experience on the other side of that? Yeah, it was very quick. Um, and we were... How, how long did you guys have in the studio? We recorded over like two and a half, three weeks, maybe. And it was like right after you it guys It was right after ATF, ATF yeah. on purpose because it was funny. So Ethan, Krisker, our music supervisor, were in the rehearsal room, which is at ATF, like right across the theater. So we were in tech and I would be like in tech. I would run out. They would text me, be like, come, we have an arrangement thing. And I would hear something they were planning for the Bo album in the other room. And I'd run back to tech. And so we were prepping for the album as the show went up and like, a week after we closed, we were in the studio rehearsing because we have a lot of guest artists, Jen Colella, Michael Kilgore, Aisha Jackson, um, Khalif St. Aubin. St. Aubin now is just his name, but he was nominated for a Grammy today for Ain't Too Proud. He was. Oh, my. Yeah. I saw that. And he's not one of the main five, but he sings so much in the second act of it that he's nominated for so shout out to saint aubin um but he's on the album so part of the the boat album was taking people who i think are phenomenal artists who are maybe not always down front and giving them that platform again serving people so yeah we recorded what, it what went into um picking who you were going to have be a part of the recording I, I i go ahead uh, i was also going to ask as like a similar core you know side by side question of was there, I'm assuming it was purposeful to bring in outside people and not use the the company from ATF? I mean, they're definitely featured. Like, yeah, they're, they're on the album, but because Bo is primarily Ace Baker, who's the lead role, and Bo singing, it would have just, it all would have been Matt. Um, and because it's a new musical, when we go wherever we're going, who knows, um, whatever that, you know, cast album will be, will be Ace Baker. It will so to okay. launch the show into the world, it made sense to give a variety of sound um, sort of as an introduction. And it was really cool to hear like the different styles. Yeah, honestly. yeah, yeah. And, the, and I'm very specific about voices. Like I study voices. Like I've gone to um, a bar and there was a karaoke thing happening and pulled a singer from that and put them in my show. Like I'm always studying and sort of researching people. So a lot of the people on the album, like Ben Roseberry was on our first album. Michael Kilgore is like the prince of Lines of Pactar because he was Amazing. on the, the Mormon tour with us and sang our music first. Um, and John Krause I found on YouTube because he's in Hadestown. He was he's singing. phenomenal. Right. Yeah. So uh, Aisha, we had done beautiful together and she's in Frozen and we wanted a female on this version of Crush. So lots of just researching voices, studying and and um, blind emails again, blind emails. No, I knew the majority okay. of these people. Okay. Jen Kalella, I, I got in touch with through a friend, but she was also just like, Fierce. oh, yeah, I'm in. I'm in. Let's go. Just the energy was like, yes. So she has a really nice energy through that song, too. Yeah. 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 Okay. It's it's it. It was a it was a gift to put together and to like walk into Sony's offices and listen to it around a conference table and. Now, um, were you changing anything on the spot there in the studio, or was everything really just solidified and concrete? Well, I like to build songs on the talent of the singer. 
Okay, so it's so, not, so you had to do that a little bit with oh, this. Oh, yeah, I coached a lot of the sing. I was like, I know you can hit this note, so let's try to hit this note. And it's like, what? you? Want me? I was like, I know you can hit this note. And then they would hit the note, and then it would be on the record, you know? And then, so that's that's the cool thing, it's too. a lot of playing like, around. Yeah, and like pulling out the best in people. You know, like, you're not just happy to be here. We, act, I want you to live. This is a record. So, like, let's slam it down, which is basically what we well, they th- did. that also kind of goes, Matt had made a comment about that too, about how you pulled that out of him with, with running. Yeah. And, and so he even learns something about himself. So I think that's really cool that you're doing that with everybody. Yeah. It's like, I know you can hit this note. Well, I having done beautiful with Jason Howland, who's incredible. Um, he wrote these arrangements that we, so when we first auditioned for beautiful, we just sang on Broadway. We didn't know what our other assignments were. And so the first day of rehearsal, he's like, yes, you're singing up on the roof and you're singing, there goes my baby here. And I was like, huh, what? And he wrote arrangements that fly all around your range. And so you might be bass here, but then alto, like, you know, the, the middle harmony here, and then your tenor and then your back. And so now when I meet people, I'm like, I know you could do it because if Jason made me do it, you could do anything. Um, so that's really how I relate to people. But I, I study the voices like that's, you know, to sing our stuff, um, especially casting the lines of pack jar five points concert. We just did two. It was a lot of reaching out to people who I had heard of or I knew their voices. So I want to talk about the book or, you know, when you're writing, not music stuff, uh-huh. the story, which can the music can also be tied into this. But looking at a. At, I guess Bo, for example, just for writing this this story of once you saw the, the like the sit down the full production for the first time this summer, and you're seeing the whole story, you're seeing the audience now play into this story and be a part of this journey. Were there any rewrites? Was there anything that you were like, and how? Or I guess how did you navigate and the post ATF story? Well, we, leading up to ATF, we had a lot of development because we had two readings last year, April and August. And then we did some table work in February, again, where it was just the actors. It wasn't a public reading or anything. Um, And then we were at the Roundabout um, and Bucks County Oscar Hammerstein Festival. We're working for a week in residence there. Um, And Musical Theater Factory in Lincoln Center in March. We did some our first choreography on our feet with Josh Rhodes. We did Bright Star. I love him so much. And... uh, And then we were at Lincoln Center. And so we learned, we've had audiences leading up to ATF. So that wasn't the first audience. So I had learned a certain reaction in certain parts that I could believe in. Um, But for whatever's next, I will go back to the ATF production and take notes from Michael Wilson and figure out how to make it better. It's always about making it better. So, you know, you jumped around a lot and you said making it better is the end goal. So like, are you going into each one with a specific goal in mind? Like this time we're going to tackle this part of act one or, or, you know, mm-hmm. well, it's all what the story needs. So we, we really do take feedback from our producers and investors and stuff and audiences. I, I believe you are writing musicals, not for yourself. You're writing musicals to encourage, you know, the human race and audiences will tell you how they feel. You can feel when it gets real cold and people are nodding and sleep, you know. And so I always try to activate the story um, and listen. You know, ATF was not about, oh, this is we're ready to go to Broadway. It was like, no, we're here to learn about our show to see where people go. Oh, or when people are nodding or, you know, when they're sitting forward, like that's the stuff you want to find. And um, without giving it away that 
early in the show when a certain character makes a move on another character, there's an audible gasp that has happened at Lincoln Center, that has happened at ATF, that has happened at Musical Theater Factory. And that's how you know, like, oh, that moment itself is foolproof wherever it goes. Um, And then you have other moments where like, nobody is doing any, like no one's reacting to anything. So how do we make that clearer or whatever? And was your audience any different, you know, in Pennsylvania, Bucks County, and then you're up in New York, Adirondack Theater Festival, and in New York City? Mm-hmm. Were you testing different waters with different audiences? Uh huh. The cool and, th- and trying to get a, a consensus of is it just is it the material? Is it the audience? Mm, I think that's really important. Um, you want to create something that lands with everyone, though. That that's the challenge. Um, and the hope. Uh, luckily, Bo is multi generational, so you have older. You know, I we witnessed middle aged and you know elderly couples weeping at the play, and it was like cool. But then you have the younger kids who are like bopping to the music, you know, and people who have lived the struggle of Ace Baker. So that that was really cool. Um, so you want to have your audience in mind, but you can't write for one demographic, or I feel like you get stuck. You know, which is something I'm That's not. That's so afraid. interesting. Yeah. I mean, you can intend the message to be for that demographic, but it, from a business standpoint, we know who are the patrons of the theater. So you have to bear them in mind because if you want your show to run, you know, that's we're, that's getting into business talk. You at least have to be aware of those people. You don't have to write for them, but don't be mad if the show doesn't last because you didn't have them in mind. I just, you know what I mean? But would the, you, do you think that you're sacrificing anything by by thinking about that business side of it? I don't think so. And that's good. For me, for me, some people are like, I made this play, 12 people came and saw it, and I'm happy because I really said what I wanted to say. And for me, I'm like, I made this play, 12,000 people came and saw it, I said what I wanted to say, and I got paid. You know, like, I, yeah. I'm, I'm 12, thinking 12,000 people? Well, no, no, not, no. no yeah. I'm just saying <laughs> in the future. Show, yeah, no, 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 like that, that some people are writing yeah. purely to, to give their voice and their heart, and I'm writing for that, but also you know, understanding that it's a business and these musicals and plays take so long. So I'm you not, want it to pay off. Yeah. I want and, it to and live. And what that means is something different than ever, you know, than the next person might. Think. Yeah. And when we talk about canon, how do I create something that is both commercial, but also truthful? That's, that's just my MO. And some people are like, I don't care about commercial. I just want, and I'm like, you know what, more power to you. But if I'm going to spend five years of my life working on a project, I want it to land in a really huge way. And I it's just a it's a business model. And everyone doesn't think that way. And they don't have to. That's just how I approach the work. It's yeah, no, it's, it's good to hear that yeah, perspective. It's just too hard. Um, Plus, I also feel like you I I often hear that from like a producer standpoint, obviously, for obvious reasons, but I, I never hear it from a writer's standpoint that they're thinking of the commercial property of, of the whole piece they're, yeah. you know rightly so i mean they're they're focused on the art but i mean like people need smart. to make income yeah <laughs> you well, know yeah, like, like if you're gonna be i'm not i'm not a people need to pay bills yeah i'm a you, this is the thing like actors fall in love with the theater and we want to do it right and we hope to get to a point that we can establish ourselves but an actor can arrive in new york and book a job in a month they could and then be employed a writer spends years in their room working on something that maybe never sees the light of day and when it does can be torn to shreds. And so if I'm going to spend that year in my room, what I do bring out, I want to be able to make money (laughs) with the people who are in the theater. Or you're just not, it's like going to a, I don't know, 
going to a reunion, thinking you're going to a birthday party. It's like you got to know the lane you're in. Do you know what I mean? It's called show business, not show show or business business. People people like, oh my God, I'm in a show. Oh my God, I wrote a show. And it's like, great. But how is that show going to relate to the business that you're in? What is, what's the merchandise? You know, what's the demographic? And I, I think as a business person. I really love that mindset. Yeah. I, I just think it's, I mean, it's smart. I mean, there's not one way to do things. No. But I, I just find that that to be very helpful. Yeah. And when you sit down with producers, they want to know, cool. So like, who is, am I talking to? Who am I talking to? Who is this for? Like with Bo, I know merchandise. You know, we had a conversation before Joe's Pub. Buttons, you know, tote bags. How are you advertising your product? Um, Buttons on tote bags. Bam. <laughs> exactly. So I, I just think that way because it's just, it's so hard. And I think artists have more power than they give themselves, but they don't realize their power until they've been burned as an artist compared to coming to the table as a business person so that they never get into a position where they're like, I'm not working right now. So what is my life? It's like, no, you always knew that even if that wasn't happening, you were good. And that's the business part of me that I'm like, mm -mm, I, mm -mm, nope. Even if you don't call me, I'm going to be good. Yeah. Because I said on my business. So that's just my. And again, this was a self-taught model. Uh, my father is in my ear about how I invest and save my money and, and, you know, and he wanted to give me everything that he didn't get. Um, so I've been very, you know, and, and I've been very on top of creating, you know, people make fun of Tyler Perry because they don't like what he puts out in the world, but the man used what he had to create a platform mm -hmm. that now employs so many people. And so how do you do that? Like, how do you use what you have? Um, and part of that is knowing, you know, it, I used to lead and I'm still very emotional as an artist, but I used to be extremely emotional to the point where I took things personally and you just can't do that. You have to know that maybe you didn't get this because you didn't match up or the director like has worked with someone that's exactly your type and wants to work with them again. Like it's not all about you. Um, but how do you navigate surviving rejection? Um, and come prepared that if this doesn't work out, I have another, I have some other options. So part of becoming a writer was that was like, well, I don't know if I want to be just an actor, not that there's anything wrong with that, but I just recognize the power and diversity of portfolio for people who are not actors only. Is there someone else out there in the world that you haven't worked with, but you're like dying or you just know that you need to work with them? Um, I love Janine Tesori. I I'm I sing uh, Let It Sing all through college. It booked me a mini job. I, I, I think she's a musical voice that I really honor, um, not only because she's a female, just because I think her ear is, is to the pulse and the soul and, and the way she works. I, I, I love that. Um, Bill Finn, A New Brain, is one of my favorite scores. Uh, I would love to sit down with George C. Wolfe. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know that I have a dream list necessarily. Mm -hmm. Well, I just know like for me as a, as a theater maker, like working to be like into the producer world of like there's two people I have in mind that I, I've just been like drawn to from the minute that I like met them. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always curious if like other people have that experience or if I'm just like alone, the weird Mary. one. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, like, no, I feel no. like I'm destined to work with these people. I just don't know what that's going to look like yet. Yeah. I No. I think I think I think I'm actually getting to a point where I'm running into or being introduced to people 
um, that I never thought I would be in a room with. Like I was doing this workshop of American Prophet and our associate director is the wife of Brian Stokes Mitchell. So there I was like, hey, can I get a picture with you? Because I did Cole House like two years ago. And like, you're so awesome. And I got to perform for him, you know? So I think naturally that wave of whoever I'm supposed to meet or probably want to work with. It all works out. Hopefully it'll work out in the right time, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah. I can't believe it's been an hour. Yeah, no, I, I still like, have so many so many things. questions. It's an hour? It's I been an tell, hour. But no, but like <laughs> so many questions. But it's we, a good thing that like yeah. I have uh, your number. We <laughs> we ask all of our guests as a final question, what was the last great piece of theater that you saw? I saw the inheritance. Oh, Fuck yeah. All day. So did we. So did we. All day. All day on Saturday, I saw The Inheritance. Um, and I really enjoyed it. I mean, for being seven hours long. And about um, subject matter like that. You yeah. Enjoyed. Yeah. I, I think it's brave. I think it's contemporary. I think it pays, you know, respect to the past in a way that um, is is really gorgeous. I could have a separate episode just about The Inheritance. Yeah. I, I, really, I, I, I did like it. You could punch her back and just like... Yeah, I, I, I liked it a lot. So The Inheritance, I'm seeing um, uh, For Colored Girls on Friday, and then Hot Man from Atlanta opens at The Signature on Sunday. So I'm seeing that because Michael Wilson, who directed Bo, is doing that. So I'm actually seeing a lot of theater um, right now. It's good. Fill it, filling, refilling your artistic cup. I guess you don't get to see a lot when you're performing eight shows a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so now you so it, it's got nice a little to, time. Yeah, and I, I, you know, to have like the freedom of the holidays and and oh yeah, um, it, and to it, have things like coming into the new year. So oh, it's yeah. like there's you're some, busy. Keeps there's you some busy. things in the new year that we will be announcing. Um, but it, it's, I just like balance. I like balance. So I love performing. But I also love balance. And I think, you know, being in and out of beautiful for six years on that schedule, you don't realize oh like God, it was six years, six years. I mean, I it, wow. it ran for six years. I did it yeah. for about four and a half, almost five. Um, but if there is 52 weeks a year, right, uh, the normal world is getting two days off. Right. So that would be 104 days. Is that right? A year on the weekend? Right? 104, yes. yes. Right? Yes. <laughs> Why, yes, that is actors, right. 52 times two. Yeah, actors get 52 because you get mm. that one. Yeah. So the imagine, just imagine what that does over time, you know, that every year you are only getting 52 days off. If you are fortunate enough, if you are fortunate enough to, to be working 52 to, weeks a year. Yeah, if you're, you know what I mean? Which the blessing of Beautiful was that it was running that long, so I would, would have... 52 days off a year if I wasn't doing things on those days off. But the rest of the world is like, I got Friday night, Saturday and Sunday, bam. And, and though we are working and I'm not, I'm not belittling or being ungrateful for it. It just, over time, it, it takes a little piece of you away. Um, just trying to grab that back now. Yeah. And just trying to have the time to like meet my nephew when I go home and like have more time for dates and, and to do things like this and to sit and meet people you don't know. Um, so, you know, and, and this, this is why I always harp on this as well is because everyone else in a Broadway building can sub out except for the actors, every stage managers, uh, technicians, costume, wig, wardrobe, they don't have to be there eight shows a week. And so there's a reason that they're not, Musicians, musicians only have to be there half of their 
contract. They only have to do 50% of a year to keep their chair. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. So when we talk about mental health and all that stuff, I really think that is important when it comes, yeah. you know, cause yes, we're being paid well, but so is everybody else. And then I gotta be there every day. That is true. <laughs> They're still being paid well. Yeah. yeah. And, and, but but there's something different when you can come to work and be like, oh, I got those two days off that I needed to spend with my kids or whatever. And I'm back to do my job. But actors have that real, you know, and if, the whip. if yeah, and if we're not there, then we're not grateful. And if we call out, then it, and it's like, no, 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 because what actors are being asked to do physically and vocally now, you know, opera singers do maybe three, four shows a week. You know, they, no one does eight shows a week except Broadway. I'm just putting that out there. Well, if our listeners want to find you on social media and all that kind of stuff uh-huh, and uh-huh. listen to your music, where can they find you? Uh, Chocolate Hipster on the Instagram, Douglas Sings on the Twitter, and Douglas Lines on the Facebook. Um, and we have Polka Dots and Bo on iTunes under Sony Masterworks Broadway. And um, yeah, come see Chicken and Biscuits at the Queen's Theater. Are tickets yeah. on sale? Friday. What's today? Wednesday? Friday. Okay. Friday they drop. Okay. So... Cool. Boop, boop, boop. What Thank are the, y'all dates, for what are the dates of that? Just so that February our listeners 28th, can. February 28th. Okay. February 28th okay, through cool. March 22nd. And the tickets for students and stuff are like 20 to 25 bucks max. So it's not very expensive. Get your ticket. So get your ticket. Oh, good. Yeah. So this will air right before that. So that's perfect. Oh, it's airing next year? It's January. You're, yeah. 2020. Oh. <gasps> When's your birthday? January 18th. Oh, shut up. I think it's actually like right after that. <laughs> that's fine. That's Perfect. great. That's Happy great. Happy birthday, Douglas. Yes. Yay. Woo. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks so much. Thank I, you thanks. for having me. This is, no, this is, I could talk all day. <laughs> we could have we like could three too. more episodes with you, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do a revival. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Page to Stage. To keep up with us, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Page to Stage Podcast. And if you're enjoying these conversations, we would really appreciate it if you could take a couple minutes to rate and review us wherever you're listening to this podcast. Until next time. That's Brian. That's Mary. We'll see you later. Bye. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.